tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. A fresh outsider tale. Oh, what a character this man was. His name's Richard Henry, and I maintain the world's first conservationist. He got so much right, New Zealander, and he was dedicated to saving our wildlife at a very, very early time. In the 1890s, it's a story of some heartbreak as well. And we've got a kakapo bonus ahead of that, the interview with Alison Balance, author of Rescued from the Brink of Extinction. That book is the best book on the subject and uh, it's being reissued updated and with extra stuff in it to keep it up to date these sort of things i think really do work best in book form new zealand birds online is great but um the book the book is lovely Alrighty, after the break though john divick and his letter from america ah. weekend variety wireless U.S. is the least qualified guy. A man. But look what they are doing today. Yes, <laughs> this guy is telling us it's better for U.S. to shut up. Yes, shut hello, John. Up. You know, I love the way he says, look at what they are doing today. 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 That was from about <laughs> 2005 or something, wasn't it? What's that guy doing? I want to know where he is. I don't know. Where is he at? Where is he? It's hard to tell with China, isn't it? You can be the head of Interpol. And, and disappear. Get, uh, disappear. How is that? That was the freakiest bit of news I saw yeah. all week. And, and it, had, nobody's really talking much about it. No, I see it every once in a while pops up. He still hasn't been found. And that uh, movie star actress in uh, China, she disappeared for a while. And then all of a sudden I saw a little snippet that she owed back taxes or something. I'm going, well, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> That's how they got Al Capone, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? But I, it's, I just, it I, really says something, doesn't it? If you can be the head of Interpol, you'd hey, think you you'd have a few security please. things going on. But if you can disappear and you're the head of Interpol, you, don't mess with China, least yeah. qualified guy. That's really weird. You know, I had one, just quickly, I had one little um, occasion to be um, uh, examined by Interpol. When I worked as a um, in the casino in in Nevada, oh. you get an Interpol check. Do you really? You get a, naturally a U.S. check, but you also get an Interpol check. Yeah. Far out. Make, make sure you haven't you know you haven't got any scurrilous things going on. Well, <laughs> for those that don't know, this is John DeVig's letter to America or from about America. About yeah, it's actually about America. Yeah. Not, well, it could be from America, metaphorically speaking. Who cares? You know, I mean, Alistair you know, Cook. You know, I mean, I'm I'm an American. I still, mm. I still, you know, kind of like think like an American. I don't think like a Kiwi. No, <laughs> no, beetroot's not in your vocabulary, is oh, it? Oh God! In fact, as funny, I was just at a place called Waiharora, little truck stop, and I had a hamburger at a little cafe there, mm. and I looked at him. I said, "And don't put a beetroot on it, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> and she looked like. Oh, okay. Oh. And she wrote it down. <laughs> Leave the beetroot off. <laughs> well, your world of hamburgers, it's just meat and the bun. You don't really care about the veggies in there, eh? Uh, you know, I don't mind the veggies. You know, like a, a Whopper, that's my favorite hamburger from Burger King. And it's got, you know, a little bit of lettuce, onion, tomato, a little okay. mayonnaise, mustard. Although I got to say, I'm sorry, folks, the, you Burger King people in this country, this is New Zealand, you just don't put enough mayonnaise on it. You know? oh. Not enough mayonnaise. Oh. A little bit more mayo, it'll be better. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so the fix was in. Are you oh, talking Kavanaugh? 
Well, Graham, I gotta tell you, uh, I can barely breathe. The stench of rotten American politics this week mm. is just, oh, God. The fix it. Now, we talked about it last week. Okay, this is the FBI investigation into Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who was this weekend confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. And we, you know, the FBI was doing a background check out on after this woman, Dr. Christine Baisley Ford, came forward and said that he attempted to rape her in um, in, in high school. Mm. And you were just amazed that the FBI just didn't get to do what they wanted. Mm. And you know, this is the way it works. The White House is the client. Okay. Oh. They're the client now. Who do they report to in the White House? They report to Don McGahn. He is the White House lawyer. He's not President Trump's lawyer. Oh. He's the White House lawyer. He looks after the White House. And who is Don McGahn? He is the guy that championed Brett McCava. Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, yeah. God, I screwed up the name already, and he's been in the news every day. Kavanaugh. He championed him. He... He guided him through the process to become the nominee. He convinced Trump to nominate this guy. And Don McGahn and Kavanaugh are best lifelong friends. It's joking. So this is a guy that's controlling the FBI investigation, and he's the guy that said you can only investigate the sexual allegations against Kavanaugh, none of the drunkenness, none of the other things that he said and lied about, because it came down to he said, she said. Right. And they only interviewed nine people, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people that had information. I, I listened to one guy who was his uh, flat roommate in uh, at Yale in their freshman year, and he said the guy was a, was a fall-down drunk. He was drunk all he was drunk all the time. Mm. And you just didn't get that from Kavanaugh when he was doing his testimony. And there were tons of other people that did that, and you, you know, it doesn't really matter. A student at Yale getting drunk, but it matters to lie about he it. He lied about it. Why would you do that? He because, lied. He know. lied about everything. In fact, I looked up the word "boofed." You heard that word? No. It's in his. It's in his yearbook, and it's anal sex. Oh. I didn't know that. I mean, I never heard it. It must be an East Coast term. Shall we Google it? <laughs> you know, I did. That's what I did. I Googled it. What came up? Well, he said it was farting. Oh. You know, I mean, everything. He lied about so many things, and there was, you know, you know, and there, there was another chief justice, John Stevens, who's like ninety-eight or ninety-six or something, mm. and uh, he was there during the Watergate years and blah blah blah, and he said that Kavanaugh's demeanor to him was the fact that he shouldn't be on the Supreme Court because mm. he was so unjudge-like. And, you know, and this is the thing. It's not a criminal. It was never a criminal case. No. It was more of a he said, she said personality case. But even if you take that and stretch it out a little bit, I've got no qualms with the fact that Dr. Ford said that he attempted to do this. He said he didn't do it. Without corroborating you know, evidence, yeah. you're innocent until proven guilty of in America. Course. That's just yeah. the way it works. As uncomfortable as you may feel, uh, it's really important to recognize yeah. that. you got to recognize that. Yeah. So if it's he said, she said, well, it's a stalemate. And yeah. you can't, you got to go, okay, fine. That's as far as that can go, really. Yeah. But the fact that the FBI was supposed to investigate and they didn't ask any cooperating witnesses really about the situation... You know, because of the White House and Don McGahn. And, you know, 
they didn't even interview Dr. Ford or Kavanaugh. Uh. I mean, that is that is just pathetic. And then to have Jeff Flake come out and say that if he lied, that would be disqualifying. But they didn't look into that. So he said, well, I think the investigation was pretty thorough. And Susan Collins said the same thing. And, you know, she's a senator from Maine who was, you know, uh, she voted against the health care, you know, as a Republican. Mm -hmm. She, she you know, down, down that. But on this one, I think it was always going to be, she was always a yes vote. And, she, and, and I think maybe the whole thing was a cover-up because Trump said that, you know, the FBI could interview Kavanaugh. He said it would be a good thing. And Don McGahn said, nope. Not gonna, not gonna allow it. Not gonna allow it. So, and he was, he was confirmed. And there's just been, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I mean, they arrested thousands, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people because there are so many protesters there. Uh, it's gonna galvanize uh, the Democrats for the upcoming midterms, mm -hmm. but also it's gonna get, it's galvanized the Republican side because they thought their guy Kavanaugh was treated shabbily. Yeah. So I mean, it, it is really he will he is already the least popular Supreme Court justice nominated since 1881. It's, you, it's so unpopular. And the thing, what, what was so bad in 81, do you know? I don't know. I, I, I saw That's the guy's right. name and I didn't look at it. But the thing is, this is all, another thing that you got to you know think about. Kavanaugh put his family in a very precarious situation. Mm. He's got two young daughters and a wife, and they've got to witness because when he was sworn in at the Supreme Court, there were thousands of people banging on the door, screaming. Mm. Uh, you know, what do you say to your kids on that? And and for the months now and years, they're going to write articles about this. They're, it's going to keep popping up, and the, and the kids are going to have to live with that. Mm. That's kind of sad. Yeah, it is. And well, it is. I mean, if you're a ten-year-old girl going to school and people are going to say stupid things about your dad, uh, that's, you know, and yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah, but he's in the world of politics now. That's going to happen. Well, that's the other thing that's really uh, unfortunate. And it's awful when people do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, leave the kids out of it. Yeah. But, uh, or anyone that's not concerned. But two other His things. His wife might not even vote Republican. She's an independent agent. Yeah. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter no. on that. But two other things about this uh, Supreme Court nomination. One, uh, Trump made fun of Dr. Ford at his rallies, you know, made public fun of her and, and derided her uh, in, on national television. Basically saying, uh, oh, I, I don't can't remember, I can't remember, can't remember, remember yeah. blah, 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 blah. But, yeah. you know, you know, so you wonder, it's not, a, it's not a surprise that women don't always come forward with this stuff because people, I mean, this is the most powerful guy in the world, and he's making fun of you on national television, yeah. ridiculing you. So, um, and the other thing, that has happened with this nomination and in the times that we live in, the Supreme Court has always been above all this shit because it's been like nine people. They've been kind of mysterious. You don't, re you never really knew who they were. You knew who they were, but you didn't. Yeah. They didn't attract much attention. They were kind of the same. Do they all flat together like Big Brother or something? Was it like the monkeys, <laughs> the, the, the band? Maybe. Who knows? But because of Trump, because of the asshole that he is and the way that the Senate Republicans produced this uh, inquiry, it's now stained. The Supreme Court is very partisan because this guy is a partisan. He's a Republican all the way. Wow. Who was that? The um, Supreme Court judge, the unpopular one, 18-something? John Wilkes Booth, was it? <laughs> you know, okay, I'll look that up and bring it back next week. Yeah. I saw the guy's right. name and I didn't, I didn't go with it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it is poisoned, isn't it? 
Uh, it is. The Supreme Court is poisoned now. Yeah. Everything, everything that Trump touches is poisoned. Okay. Lie and deny. You know, and this is uh, carrying on from that. Um, you know, in America, we, we used to have this corny saying. It was from, like, Superman or something. You know, truth, justice, and the American way. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, exactly. And, and now it's lie and deny. It's totally lie and deny. And, and it comes from Donald Trump. It comes from the president of the United States. He lies every day. And I, I just, and what hit me with this, I just saw a replay of this just this week when they showed Donald Trump on the Air Force One saying that he had no knowledge of the $130,000 paid to Stormy Daniels that he did, you'd have to ask his lawyer, Michael Cohen. No knowledge of whatsoever. Didn't know where the money came from. Had nothing to do with me. Didn't have a relationship with her. Nothing. And then the next week when the FBI raided Michael Cohen's offices, there's an audio tape that he recorded of him and Donald Trump talking about how to facilitate the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels. Mm. Definite lie. And then the next day, a reporter asked Trump, well, why did you lie about the $130,000 that you said you didn't know anything about? And he just looked at her and looked at everybody else and said, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. That's not what I said at all. You go back to the tape. You go back to the tape and look at what I said. And she goes, no, we, we, we know what you said. No, 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 you don't. Go back to the tape. And then blah, 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 blah. He talked right over her. Just a blatant lie. And he just keeps bustling through stuff. Like, you know, you go, that's, that's just a lie, you know. But he just kind of like shuffs it off. And everybody lies. I mean, his, his chief, of, chief of staff, John Kelly, he told the most horrendous lie about a congresswoman. I mean, and they had videotape of her on camera saying something completely opposite. Half the cabinet lies. Everybody lies. Kellyanne Conway, one of his chief counselors, she goes on TV and lies all the time. Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the PR chief, she lies all the time. Every time she gets up there in that dais, she lies. Sean Spicer lied. And so... We bring it all the way back to the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And what did he do when he got in front of the Senate committee? He lied and denied. Lied and denied. He lied about his drunken behavior. He lied about the yearbook. He lied about a bunch of other things. And they were small things. They didn't really matter. You want to go, I, you know, I'm looking at the guy and I'm going, you got drunk in high school. Yeah. In college, you got drunk and pulled your pants down and winged your winger around. We've all done it. We've done it. <laughs> and you know? Oh, I've streaked. Okay. I, I streaked here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, okay, I took my yeah. clothes off in Otaki and ran up the main boulevard of town. Oh, that's a marvelous uh, event. Well, you know, I mean, shit happens. It's on the $87 bill. Joe and I But, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm. But because Trump lied and gets away with it and the Republican Party says, okay, we're not a problem. Kavanaugh said, no, I'm going to lie, too. And he just lied his pants off, and the Republican Party never even brought it up and wouldn't let the FBI investigate those lies. Perjury would not let them investigate it. Economy's doing well, though, isn't it? I'll get to that at the end. Okay. Uh, the American Dream. Okay, this is, oh, God, the American Dream. Oh, the American Dream. You know, we, used to, we have ideals in the States. We used to. The American Dream, you know, like if you work hard, you got an opportunity, there are opportunities there, and you bust your butt and you're a little bit smart or a little bit of this, or you take a chance, you can become whatever. You can become a millionaire, you can become a billionaire. I mean, it's it's there. Yeah. And that's a dream. And, and it's not always, it's, it's just an ideal. Yeah. It's not set in stone. I God mean, it doesn't no. happen for everybody. Yeah. The rest of the world is far more risk averse. 
Yeah. And the new people. Yeah. And and that's kind of the ideal there. And I always crack up when people say, well, you know, the American dream is dead. And it's not dead. It's never, it's just there in the either. You can grab it or you can't grab it. And every day people do. I mean, you read mm. stories about immigrants that come over and they got nothing and they do so well. Well, now this is the. God, this look is at the Kardashians. The, Haven't they done well? Well, there you go. I mean, and that's a bunch of bullshit, but it's 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 a bunch of a lot of money bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, when I first looked at them, because my little girl at one stage was really following the Kardashians, and I looked at it and I went, that's what it's about? Yeah. <laughs> it's just gossip bullshit? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so here's the biggest fraud. And, you know, this is what Trump built his whole thing on. That he did everything himself. That he's a business genius. That he, he he was smarter than everybody else. That he went to the Wharton School of Finance. And he did this. He borrowed a measly $1 million. I love the way he said that. Mm. A small loan from his dad. $1 million that he had to pay back with interest. Well... You, and that's why he ran on the presidency, that he was a self-made guy and he was smarter than you. And, and if you, you know, followed his example, you know, that you could just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and become a billionaire and I'm going to show you how to do it. You know, I'm the guy. It's all a fraud. Mm. It's all a fraud. When he was three years old, his dad, Fred, who had the empire, who had the real estate empire, the buildings, the apartments, the whole deal, was giving Trump... Three years old, $200,000 a year. By the time he was eight, he was a millionaire already. He had over a million dollars in the bank. When he was 17... Is his... that the pocket money he got? No, that just was in a bank. Oh, yeah. yeah, pocket money. That yeah. was just put in a bank. 200000 bucks every year. Far out. Yeah. And then when he was... That's a lot in those days. Oh, in those days, it's just, you know, when he was 17, he gave him shares in an apartment building. When he graduated from college, he started to get $5 million a year. When he started to do his developments, his dad bought the first Manhattan offices of Trump, refurbished those offices, bought him a car, paid his employees, kept funneling money to this guy. Over $400 million he shoveled into Donald Trump's back pocket. And every time Trump bankrupted himself or failed, Freddie Trump was right there bailing his ass out. He went into a casino that Trump was bankrupting and bought $3.5 million in chips, put them in a bag, and walked out of the casino because the money then was transferred to Trump, no taxes, and he, and he had to make a payment on a loan. They got caught for that one, and they got fined $65,000. The thing also with this is they did it, half of this stuff was done illegally through tax loopholes and schemes, and some of it was outright fraud. For instance... They built a company. They made up this company. I forget what it was called. It's Compound Securities Limited, blah, blah, blah. And what they would do is they would buy a, a boiler, which is kind of like a, a hot water heater or something, for one of the apartments. Cost 10000 bucks. They would list it as $50,000 and put the $40,000 in their back pocket and charge it to Fred Trump, who was fine with this. And then the goal that they had, the goal that these assholes had... In those days, in the 70s, there was rent, rent control in New York. And, you know, two things about this. First is that, you know, the Trumps wouldn't, wouldn't rent to colored people, to people of color, and they got nailed on that. But also, they would then go to the State Securities Commission and say, listen, we put all these, you know, $50,000 worth of improvements in this, whole, in this apartment. We've got to raise the rent. So they were screwing poor people left, right, and center. Then in the 1990s, 
This jerk-off Trump, Donald Trump, tried to screw his own dad. When his dad was on his deathbed, he got an army of lawyers to write a codicil to his will so that he could be the executor of the estate and take all the money for himself. And Trump was, was just losing enough, Fred, to say, screw you, Donald, forget it, I'm not signing that. Unbelievable. But the whole thing is, when he was at the Phoenix, when he had his university, which was bullshit, mm. I'm going to tell you how to make a million dollars. You know how you make a million dollars? You know how you become rich? Have rich parents. Yeah. Have rich parents. So his whole thing is a fraud. So you guys that support this fraud, that he, self-made man, which is such bullshit, because when Fred Trump died, he transferred over a billion dollars into the Trump Foundation. It's all a fraud, folks. He's the biggest fraud in the history of con men. And you guys bought it hook, line, and sinker. And his dad's middle name's Christ. Is it? Yeah. Bullshit. No. Really? Frederick Christ Trump. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm surprised Trump hasn't used this in, in the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah. I'm the son of Christ as well. Yeah. <laughs> Christ the son of God now. I'm the son of Christ. I'm the uh, second, third coming. God. Was say, okay. Now, stupidest statement this week? Yeah, this comes from Chuck Grassley. He's the guy that um, heads the um, Senate Judiciary Committee. This, this guy, now listen to this, folks. This guy's 85. Mm. All right. Now, some people are sharp at 85, but even if you're sharp at 85, you're 85. You've been around the block. You know, you've got some miles on your odometer. He's from Iowa. And, you know, and he, and he says stupid stuff all the time, and, and he daughters all the time at 85. And this week, he said, because it was pointed out there are no women on the Judicial Committee, and there has never been any women on the Judicial Committee. He came out this week and said, well, you know, we have a heavy workload, and I just don't think the women are up to it. <laughs> oh, you know, you just go, serious? And yeah. he's serious. Yeah. He's, he's serious. And you look at him, you go, you're just an ass. You're stupid. Okay. You're clueless. We've got a minute. Positive news. Okay, God, I hate to do this. But, you know, we're going to give Trump some credit. Unemployment is up, is down 3.7%, 50-year low, 50 years. Okay, that, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. It's a trend, really. I mean, he, he wants to take full credit for it, but he can't because it was 4.5% under Obama, and it's trended down. But it has trended down, and he has deregulated things and stirred up business and got Republicans, business people excited so there's more hiring and unemployment is, I mean, you know, you get down to around three and a half percent, it's kind of like full employment. I yeah. mean, there's just so many, a certain percentage of people that ain't going to work. Yeah. And so Ameri the American economy is doing well, and we will give credit to Donald J. Trump for that. We are, <laughs> we are taping this, aren't we? Hey, fabulous stuff today, John. Thanks, Grant. Thank you. And uh, next up. Uh, we begin the story of the kakapo. Uh, it's doing oh, well is this the bird thing? It's, we're doing well on the bird of the year. Yeah, no, this yeah. is a special story. And after 11 o'clock, an incredible cool. story. Um, the story of Richard Henry. Weekend Variety Wireless. There's a republication of a book. It's updated with new info. 
it did win a science prize, I think. We'll get the details on that. It's about our kākāpō. Rescued from the brink of extinction, kākāpō by Alison Balance. It's a hell of a story, and this is a comprehensive book. I've got the previous edition, as if we need an excuse to talk about this particular conservation effort and this peculiar animal, especially while Bird of the Year is going on. No favour. Alison Balance, the author, is with us to tell us about the republication. Hello, Alison. Hello. Uh, Alison, you'd be familiar to a lot of people interested in New Zealand natural history. You've been a journalist with this sort of thing for a long time. You're all over national radio with it, aren't you? I am indeed. Now, why is this being republished, reissued? What's new about this particular book? Well, the book first came out in 2010, and so it was the story of Kākāpō up to the beginning of 2010, really, and it was going great guns, but... The conservation program has continued to do amazing things. Kākāpō numbers have continued to go up and sometimes down since then. And we're actually poised on the brink of what's going to be the biggest Kākāpō breeding season ever. And there's a whole new audience of people who in the last few years, particularly from overseas, have discovered what amazing birds Kākāpō are. And so there's all these people who want to know about this bird so that they'll be able to follow this breeding season when it kicks off maybe late December, certainly in January, and go through for six months. And the Department of Conservation are expecting more kākāpō babies than they have ever had before, which is such good news. Yeah, unfortunately, though, one of the things with stats is that double one is only two. There are so few of the buggers. There are. Right at this moment in time, we have 148. Okay, after the news at the top of the hour, we're going to hear the story of Richard Henry in detail. Richard Henry, the man whose vision was adopted nearly 100 years later in order to actually save the kākāpō, has ended in heartbreak. But just a few thoughts on Richard Henry. By way, basically, of a promo for what an amazing story he is for the next hour, Alison. You are right. It is the most incredible story. He was such a visionary man. He was just on his own, sometimes with a helper, based in Fiordland, and he could see what very few other people could see at that time in the late 1800s, that our native birds were in trouble, that stoats and ferrets were sweeping through the country and just decimating them. And he had this idea of moving birds around to islands, islands without predators, to try and save them. And you're quite right, and it took a long time for the rest of the world to catch up with going, actually, that's a really good conservation tool. And there are so many other stories, personal human stories, surrounding the effort to save this bird, to rescue it from the brink of extinction, which is the title of the book. Tell us about Don Merton and his work. Oh, Don Merton was a, a great man. He was one of our fantastic treasures. So, and, and he learnt from Richard Henry. A lot of what he did was inspired by reading Richard Henry's writings. And so when Don was working for the Wildlife Service in the 1960s and 1970s, he realised that the Chatham Island Black Robin was right on the brink of becoming extinct. And he managed to turn that species around by moving eggs and chicks around between birds. And luckily, as everyone probably knows, we had Old Blue and Old Yellow, who between them are the parents of all the the Black Robins that we have now, which is about 250 birds. Mm. And Don also put his eagle-eyed gaze on kākāpō. And when he started work, there was just a handful of old males still booming their hearts out in Fiordland. 
he went in there year after year with the wildlife service trainees and he was he began to learn about the birds because they didn't know anything about them. They still thought that kakapo could maybe fly, that they went around in pairs. And so they had so much to discover and his grit and determination really is, is what revealed kakapo as this strange neck breeding bird, this bird where the males all go to high places during the breeding season and boom to attract the females. And it's the only parrot in the world that does that. And it was Don and his colleagues who discovered that. And then they had a lucky break in the early 1980s, late 1970s, when they discovered a population of kākāpō hidden on Stewart Island that we didn't know anything about. Mm. And luckily, this population had females and it was breeding. And that's when they became aware that the kākāpō were still there but feral cats were being a real problem. And before their eyes, the birds started to be killed and started disappearing. And they just basically couldn't manage it on Stewart Island. It was too difficult a problem. Mm. And just, there was such a good coincidence because about that time, people like Dick Veach were leading campaigns to do things like take feral cats, get rid of them on Little Barrier Island. They got rid of possums and weckers on Codfish Island and suddenly... They had a couple of islands that were predator-free. Well, they still had rats, actually. They still had kiori. But they they just made this monumental decision to move an entire species of bird from its last stronghold on Stewart Island because it was basically going extinct in Fiordland and move them all to these other islands, to codfish, whenuahau, to hauturu, little barrier around the Hauraki Gulf. And they just managed to sweep up about 60 birds and rescue the whole species it was a repeat of what Richard Henry did, isn't it? It's exactly a repeat of what Richard Henry did. And through this whole time, Don was reading Richard Henry's notes. He was sitting in Fiordland going, oh, Richard Henry says that the birds are led by a female and, and um, I'm pretty sure they boom at night and, and they're doing that to attract the females. And, and Don would read this and go, yeah, I think that's what the male kākāpō are doing too. I think Richard Henry was on to something. There's a, maybe a perception because the greatest number, although they're not in great quantity, but the greatest number, uh, Codfish Island, you have the image of the last ones in Fiordland, resolution uh, attempt with Richard Henry in the 1890s. But they were our third most abundant bird, I understand, the third most common, and their range was all over New Zealand. They were the, the people who study fossil bird bones just find kākāpō bones everywhere and they say they were just completely prolific. There's, I think it was Charlie Douglas who wrote the wonderful description of if you shake a tree and kākāpō will fall out like apples falling off an apple tree. Yeah, and Charlie Douglas, 1800s, sort of a um, do-it-yourself surveyor, really, wasn't he? Yes, he, he spent lots of time in South Westland and, and Northern Fiordland tramping on the hills, mapping the the place for us, basically. Well, they did seem abundant. It's not that long ago. Were they it's all not that long ago? Uh, were they all just old adults, and the chicks were being killed? Well, I think once they started introducing stoats and ferrets in about the late uh, sort of eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, they started bringing them. They moved down through the country, so I think rats had started to have a, a bit of an impact, and then those bigger predators turned up, and it was just a wave of destruction that was coinciding with us chopping all the forests down. Okay, 
it must be a frustration. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a typical New Zealander. It's the stupid bloody panda bear problem as well. That, come on, breed, will you? They aren't prolific breeders, are they? No, well, they used to... They're long-lived, and they used time used to be their ally. They had time on their side. So they basically wait until podocarp trees, like the rimu, have these mass seeding, these mass seeding events. Yeah. And those only happen every two or three or four years. And the kakapo had lots of time, so they went, oh, we can wait as well. So they wait for those trees to produce copious amounts of fruit, um, which is a, it's a really slow fruit production cycle. So the amazing thing is that the birds know months, maybe even years in advance, that, oh, I can see the rimu trees are going to do something. And it gets, as the, the trees are coming up to fruiting, mass fruiting time, the birds can all synchronise their breeding efforts. The last one on the mainland, probably, that was the one that Don Merton found and named after Richard Henry, wasn't it? Richard Henry, the very famous kakapo, was the only Fiordland bird who survived. They moved a couple of them, um, and he was the only one that survived. And he has been a critical bird. Sadly, he died a few years ago, just shortly after Don Merton himself died. So that was the end of an era in two ways. But he's a critical bird because he's genetically quite distinct from all the Stuart Island birds. They genetically, they're kind of all a little similar. Mm. And Richard Henry has lots of different genes. He ended up on Maud Island in the late 1990s and managed to have one fling. He was getting quite old and he managed to have one last fling with a female kakapo called Flossie because all kakapo have names, so we can talk about them as if they're people. Yeah. And they managed to produce three chicks who are the precious Fjordland babies, Kuia, who's a female, and Sinbad and Gulliver, who are named after two big valleys in Fiordland. Yeah, that was quite a feat. Uh, and I suppose no one knew exactly how important it was going to be at the time. Well, maybe Don Merton had an idea. But there are so many, as I said, human stories, amazing human stories. Um, Don Merton had cancer. He knew it was terminal. He made a special trip down to see Richard Henry before he died. And no one really knew how old Richard Henry was. They thought he could be about 100. But, um, you know, just to make that effort and I suppose to celebrate and salute an amazing conservation effort, that was a, you know, it brings a tear to the eye, really, doesn't it? It does. And the, the, the very special thing about that was that Don had a picture from decades ago of him wearing, he, he was famous for wearing a red and black check bush shirt. Yeah. And he had a picture of himself holding Richard Henry. And when he made this last, journey down to Fenewaho to basically say goodbye to the birds and to say goodbye to Richard Henry. He had another photo taken that's in the book of him wearing the famous black and red checked bush shirt and holding Richard Henry, who he used to describe as being a bit like a Persian cat who would, yeah. um, who was so calm at being handled that he would just fall asleep in Don's arms. We are celebrating the republication fully updated from eight years ago when it won the best uh, science writing prize. Am I right? There was the best science writing prize, Alison? Yeah, the Royal Society Te Aparangi used to run a science book prize and it did indeed win one year, which was a great honour. Okay. Well, that was 2010. It's being republished, updated, rescued from the brink of extinction. We're speaking with Alison Balance uh, this evening ahead of the full story of Richard Henry from the 1890s. I think the world's first conservationist. We'll be back very shortly. The Weekend Variety Wireless.
Rescued from the brink of extinction. We have a copy on offer. It's a grand thing. Uh, good luck to you if you've emailed saying that you would like this particular book. We'll draw a winner randomly from all the emails at the end of this interview. Rescued from the brink of extinction, Kakapo, Alison Balance, the author, is with us. You uh, you cover a lot of New Zealand natural history, but I do get the feeling Kakapo is kind of your thing. You've been intimately involved with them, haven't you? I've had the great privilege of being intimately involved with them. So I, it's kicked off for me in the, in the mid-1990s when I was working at NHNZ, which used to be TVNZ's old natural history unit down in Dunedin making Wild South documentaries. And I got the chance to make a documentary on Kākāpō, which is a slow process. We've already talked about how it's two, three, maybe four years between breeding seasons. And obviously I wanted to film in a breeding season and, and I started off filming one year and nothing happened and I filmed another year and nothing happened and it wasn't until year number three finally rolled around that they had a, a an important breeding season and I managed to film male kakapo at their track and bowl systems and I sat up all night and spied on females and their chicks in the nest and all up I think I've spent about probably about eight months on Fenuaho Codfish Island which is a real gem of a place and it's such a privilege to be there and I do have to admit that I haven't actually seen many kākāpō in the flesh. They used to be really hard to see, so mm. I spent a lot of time spying on them with the remote infrared cameras. But we should tell people where Codfish Whenauhau is. That's just off Stewart Island, but far away enough for the relevant pests to keep away? Exactly. It's a, it's a two or three kilometres offshore, very wild seas between it and the ruggedy mountains up in the northwest of Stewart Island, so that's a safe moat that predators can't get across. And that island is completely predator-free, and it's a real gem. All right. Now, this is a pretty intense conservation effort, isn't it? They're going to have to be intensely conserved and, and taken care of. Is it? What is it, about one person to a kākāpō? <laughs> Not quite, but it, it almost used to feel like that. So it certainly has been New Zealand's most, I would say, most intense conservation program. It's a, been a flagship threatened species program since Don Merton's time, really. Uh, starting in the 80s and the 90s, they moved all the birds to these offshore islands. And then under the visionary leadership originally of Don Merton and then Paul Jansen and then more latterly Deirdre Verko, they've been working really hard. They have rangers who spend all their time out on the islands. The birds all have radio transmitters on them so that the rangers can find them so that they know where they are. Um, and they have the aim, really, of trying to do themselves out of a job because what mm. they're trying to do is just make more baby kākāpō. And they would love to get to the point where they don't need to have this big team of people spending all their time out on the islands trying to anticipate what the birds need and feeding them extra food and, and look, helping them look after their chicks during the breeding season. They'd love to do themselves out of a job. And they're getting there because you have to think that at, a, at their low point in the mid-1990s, there were 51 known kākāpō. We've got nearly three times that number now. Yeah. Is every single nest monitored on codfish? Yep. As soon as a female starts nesting, and she's a archetypal solo mum, no one, the boys don't give her a hand at all, they're too busy just showing off. Um, as soon as a nest is found, they put a, an infrared camera on it. There's a beam across the door of a nest, so every time she leaves or returns, they know where, where she where she is. Um, and they have, in the past, they've had people camping out next to the nest. Yeah. 
So if mum leaves the nest at night, it rings the doorbell, the watcher sits up and keeps an eye on it to make sure that that all things are going well, that she's, she, that she doesn't spend too much time off the nest because maybe if the rimu fruit doesn't ripen, it might be a bit hard for her to find enough food. And if she's just spending too long away and those eggs are getting a bit cold, those chicks are getting a bit cold, mm. then they have to start making decisions about do we put a little heat pad on them? Do we think that maybe we're going to have to take her chicks away and hand rear them because she just might not be able to feed them enough? Yeah, there could also be the perception out there that this is a stupid snowflake bird on a no-exit road to extinction. Look how dumb it is. It's just, it's going to go. But, uh, okay, from my point of view, being formerly the third most common bird in New Zealand, it didn't matter back then, its proclivities, because it would do well on the whole. But because there were so few of them... Yeah, we've mucked things up for them, and I think we have a moral obligation to make things right for them again. Well, I did get through an ice age, so um, that's not bad going. Yeah, they they are this incredibly evolutionary distinct species. They've been around for a very long time. They're the oldest parrot species in the world. They're one of the oldest groups of birds, Mm. and there's just nothing else like them on the planet. They are very, very distinctly ours, and if we lost them, um, we would have lost something completely irreplaceable the world would have but the whole world would have it's not often that a graph can bring a tear to the eye but uh, you may find this graph if you have a bit of a google look the births of kakapo mainland versus offshore island and it just shows how important the offshore island project was one graph goes down to zero and the other is going up and up and up it's quite a thing when you think about it isn't it it is indeed. And the remarkable thing that the Kakapo recovery team has done in the last just 30 years, really, is that they've turned around a rare bird whose population was most, two-thirds of them were males, and they were all of an unknown age, and probably lots of them, like Richard Henry, were quite old. Not that we actually know how long Kakapo can live for. Mm. And what you have now is a population that's three times the size. It's almost 50-50 males and females, and it's chocker full of young birds. And so these are young kākāpō who will have a long life ahead of them. And so the population is now in a really good space to, to keep growing. And then they're going to have the problem of finding new homes for them because the islands are starting to get quite full. Yeah, that's great. There is a control experiment, is the not of leaving them alone rather than the intensive monitoring, and that's Little Barrier Island. That's true. So Kākāpō now are on three islands. So they're on Hōturu, Little Barrier, and the Hauraki Gulf, and that's a population of about... There's about 14 birds now there, I think, and they don't get this extra food, and they're going to keep an eye on them, and they'll step in if there's a problem, but they're not going to have this really intensive monitoring that they have on the other two islands. So Whenuaho continues to be the place where they, they're really going to keep a close eye on them. There's another island, Anchor Island, Pukanui, in Dusky Sound, which turned out to be, in the last breeding season about three years ago, was an incredibly important island. That was the first time that had kākāpō back in Fiordland breeding since yeah. probably about the 1890s. Yeah, yeah, and that same area where Richard Henry gave it a valiant crack.
Anyway, there may be a sort of Damocles hanging over them or at least something which may hinder their recovery and that's a genetic bottleneck. There's no getting around that unless we get in there and shuffle up some genetic cards. Well, the fantastic thing about that last Fjordland breeding season was that Kuya, Richard Henry's daughter, finally had chicks. And not only did she have chicks, she laid two clutches of eggs. She's turned out to be this super little breeder who can churn out eggs and chicks. And so we finally have Richard Henry grand birds, I suppose, your grand chicks running around with some of those precious Fjordland genes. Mm. And one of the conservation measures they're doing is they're working really hard to try and maximise, you know, the best... They, they've worked out who they really need to have breeding with who to get the best chance of keeping genes in the population. And they, they have an artificial insemination programme where they go around, they collect sperm from birds and they artificially inseminate the females. And although it succeeded one year and it hasn't succeeded since, it is actually a, a potentially a really good tool for them to just mix up the genes a bit more than the birds are doing themselves. All right. In the next hour, the whole hour is devoted to the story of Richard Henry. I think he should be on our money. It's an amazing life that he lived and before he got into the major conservation uh, stuff that he did in Fiordland, he loaded a gun, pointed it to his head and shot himself in the head. That's almost how a story starts. It'd be a great movie, wouldn't it, Alison Balance? It would be a fantastic movie. It is a great story and um, I agree with you that Richard Henry needs more recognition than he currently gets. Yeah. All right, well, we'll do our best in the next hour and you've helped with this interview as well. And the book, Rescued from the Brink of Extinction, updated Kākāpō. It's about Kākāpō. We've been speaking with the author, Alison Balance. Go out and get one at once. All right, Alison, thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. Nice to talk to you as always. actually going to draw the winner of the book next Sunday to give people a week so I forgot to tell people about it yesterday didn't I that it was on offer so you've got a week plenty of time just email from the weekend variety wireless Facebook page it's clearly labeled and so you would like Kakapo and Richard Henry his story after news <laughs>